Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello, Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance, and I am talking with you today about moral virtue and the intellectual virtue of artistry or craftsmanship. And this is continuing my series on Aristotle's intellectual virtues as a replacement for Bloom's taxonomy, especially the cognitive domain goals. And my big idea here is that I think we need a more holistic, integrated vision of our goals for education. In the last lecture, I talked about, in particular, a holistic Christian purpose of education and how we can appropriate Aristotle and his intellectual virtues from a Christian perspective. And so it might seem strange after talking there about how we need to have our vision of sanctification and therefore education as involving the cultivation of moral, intellectual, and spiritual virtues for me to now go on and continue just on intellectual virtues with this series. But we cannot do everything in one book. And so even if we want to place it in this bigger perspective, um, we are going to focus primarily on intellectual virtues from Aristotle going forward with that broader Christian frame in mind. However, you should not think that we won't talk about moral and spiritual things along the way as well, because one of my primary points in the last lecture was that the moral, intellectual, and spiritual categories are actually overlapping and interpenetrating. And this is one of the reasons that Aristotle's virtues, which have this interpenetrating moral and intellectual categories, are a great antidote to Bloom's taxonomy, which tried to create this rigid set of different hierarchies for these areas of the human person. So we're going to go forward and we're going to talk a good bit today about how moral virtue and all the moral virtues actually interact and have certain analogies and uh, unique connections to Aristotle's intellectual virtue of techne, what I like to translate as artistry or craftsmanship. Now, if you read a translation of Aristotle, you'll find in his book six of the Nicomachean Ethics that often this word techne is translated simply as art. And we know this familiar term art in English from the liberal arts. So that would maybe be pointing us in the right direction. But mostly when we say art, we think of particular fine arts these days, like painting and sculpture. And so the fine arts are one particular type of art. But this word art, which is from the Latin, had a broader range 
any sort of artistry or craftsmanship, any productive skill that someone could have. So that's where we're going to talk. And one of the interesting things in book two of the Nicomachean Ethics is how Aristotle actually explores this unique interrelationship between what we might call the moral virtues or moral excellence in general in Aristotle's terminology and this specific intellectual virtue, though he hasn't called it that yet, of techne or artistry, craftsmanship. There are some things about moral virtue and craftsmanship that are alike, that seem to work together or in the same way. Well, we're going to dive in. We'll um, reference Charlotte Mason along the way, try and think through primarily Aristotle's thoughts from the Nicomachean's Ethics of Book 2. But um, we're going to have some broader considerations in mind and lift it up to think about what we know from modern neuroscience as well as we explore this idea of habit and practice and how habit underlies both moral virtue and craftsmanship or artistry. Well, we start then with this famous phrase that we've probably all heard or seen in memes of in excellence comes by habit. Excellence comes by habit. And this is a quotation of Aristotle. And I would add that it is at least partially a misquotation of Aristotle because not all excellence comes by habit in terms of what Aristotle actually said. So if you look at the context, he actually is distinguishing between two types of excellences. And he says that moral excellence in the main comes by habit, whereas intellectual excellence owes, he says, both its birth and its growth to teaching. And the Greek word he uses there is didaskalia, a standard kind of Greek word for teaching that's even used later on in the time of the New Testament being written for instruction, what we would expect, either training or teaching in a particular skill or in knowledge. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is we think about how excellence comes by habit, but intellectual excellence comes by teaching is the modern, I suppose, phenomenon of people denying that children actually need a teacher. There's this Rousseauian philosophy out there that views children as able to just grow and develop into all that they need intellectually on their own. And you can even see this in sort of modern self-discovery movements. There's, I think of in particular, the kind of unschooling idea that you get away from school and systematic instruction, just let the child develop on his own and become his own person. And um, I think this is a contrast to what Aristotle is saying here when he says that intellectual virtue owes its birth and growth to teaching. It needs to be born or birthed, and then it needs to grow through a long process of instruction that takes time. And he mentions that explicitly, and it takes experience. There's a slow development and growth process for intellectual virtue. 
Now, of course, with this unschooling idea of a, a child or student growing and developing on his own without any need of a teacher or any help, some in our day may think of people like Charlotte Mason and Mont Maria Montessori. And I would reference you if you're able to click through and find the article to find Patrick Egan's great article of comparing Charlotte Mason and Maria Montessori because they're very different thinkers here. But many hear some of the things that Charlotte Mason says about how there is no true education but self-education. And they hear her expressing something very similar. If we go into Charlotte Mason's thought for a moment and think about this issue of, of how children grow and what true education is, if it's simply self-education or if there is a need for a teacher, one of the things that Mason is doing as she says that is she's actually making a distinction between curriculum and instruction. And she's putting the focus upon curriculum rather than instruction. Aristotle, back in his ancient context, would not have probably um, paid as much close attention to this distinction. It wouldn't have been as relevant in his day. Procuring books was costly and challenging. The need for a competent teacher, someone who taught was more central and more important. You couldn't do as much as you could by books. And so when we think about the um, particular geniuses or you know exceptions to the rule of needing teaching, and we think about this distinction between curriculum and, inst and instruction, we might suppose that actually the, the geniuses that supposedly learned everything on their own, you know, the self-taught, self-made men and women of the world who got on just fine without the need of an instructor at particular points, we should think of them as really the exceptions that prove the rule rather than true exceptions. It may be the case that a disciplined and curious mind can learn a whole lot on its own but really they are actually using the instruction or teaching the didascalia of books. Even if those are independent means, those are other minds that they're interacting with and getting it from. So I don't think they actually um, destroy Aristotle's point here that intellectual virtue owes its birth and growth to teaching. And of course, we could then go further and think about this issue of habit and um, the habits that form in a person for morality. And of course, Aristotle's talking about how if you're going to become just or temperate, it's really what you do again and again and again that make you that sort of person. If you're going to be excellent morally, it's the habitual practices that you have that get you there. And I think we all know this and can recognize this for Charlotte Mason, the importance of habits, we might say, uh, looms even larger. And so she talks about how it's not just moral, but intellectual habits that make a person educated. She talks about attention, for instance, as the hallmark of an educated person. And as she thinks this out, and I, I reference in particular a long passage from her sixth volume, about the importance of habit when she talks about education as a discipline, 
But what we can really see if we look into her thought here is that she's not actually disagreeing with Aristotle in this way. She does think that intellectual virtues are habits as well, that there are intellectual habits. They are wired in, if you will, to the brain structure. And she's actually drawing from modern neuroscience as best as they had it at her day, which was in many ways ahead of the time for others, for many scientists at her day, as she looked at neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain can actually change and develop, not just in early years, but later on in life. And so as she talks about the formation of habits, both intellectual and moral, we might wonder, is this, is this contradictory to Aristotle? And the truth is that she, in essence, says there that the intellectual habits come out of following the right curriculum in the right way, reading the right books and requiring the student to do that spontaneous act of knowing. And she, of course, is thinking of that practice of narration in particular as exciting the student's own intellectual development by engaging them in the process of really knowing what they encounter. And so I think in that way, then, she's actually seeing the teaching process in the right books and the right process um, or the right methods of learning as being the, the way of developing intellectual virtue in the students. So I think there's actually a coherence here between them. And if we go into the idea of nature um, for Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics book two, he makes this very interesting point about how we get excellences neither by nature nor contrary to nature. And so we have an adaptation by nature to be able to do moral excellences or intellectual excellences, but we don't have them by nature. And so he uses the example of how a rock, he cannot be habituated to fly upwards. Its nature is that it goes downwards. And fire, in the same way, can't be habituated to go down, it goes up. And our modern science might cause us to quibble here. He's operating based on his understanding of objects having a telos, a goal that they're going to by nature. And so uh, we've, of course, discovered modern secrets like of science, like combustion, how fire actually works, and, um, and why, therefore, it seems to go up like that. And the nature of gravity, and those aren't things that Aristotle understands yet, even if he did more than his due share toward, uh, toward, modern, toward science and the development of physiology and understandings like that during his day. But the, the core insight from Aristotle then is that it's by nature that these things do these things. And in the same way for human beings, our nature is adapted toward excellences, but we don't have them by nature. And uh, the analogy here between morality and artistry continues to develop because what, what Aristotle is getting at is that we have certain abilities by nature. So for instance, sight, he talks about the analogy of the example of sight, how we can see. And it's not by seeing many times that we develop the ability to see. 
We simply, by nature, have sight. On the other hand, just because you build something once doesn't make you an architect. You become a builder by building many times, practicing and developing the habit, the custom of building. And of course, you could be a bad builder or a good builder, depending on how you build and the extent to which you practice the proper way and method of building. And this is important because, again, just by doing something and just having basic levels of habit doesn't mean you have good habits. So it's not just by nature that you would do any of the moral excellences or intellectual excellences, and this is why you need a teacher or coach. So by nature, you have sight. Now, on the other hand, the moral excellences and intellectual excellences are not contrary to nature. So for instance, you can't create a habit of doing something that's physically impossible for you. Um, and we could jump over to the analogy of, for instance, a, what, we, what we might call a particular intellectual excellence of craftsmanship, that is the ability to run a four minute mile. There were years and years where it was thought to be physically impossible to run a four minute mile until one man broke the four minute mile mark. And then suddenly a whole host of people broke that mile mark within a year of him doing it. There was actually this mental barrier where we thought it was impossible. We thought it was physically impossible to break this mile, you know, the four minute mile um, time mark. And it was not. But the, the idea here is that you can't do something that's contrary to nature. You can't do something that's physically impossible for you now. But if you train, if you practice, if you exercise, you can slowly and incrementally actually increase or develop your abilities in any one particular area. Um, this sort of thing is mind blowing and exciting because it does make you wonder what is possible for human beings to do. We know that throughout time, throughout the generations, human beings have done incredibly great things beyond what we would think to be possible. So this is Aristotle's idea about intellectual excellence and moral excellence. And the, the point that he's making is that just like builders become good builders by building, so people become morally good, morally excellent, just by doing just acts. Uh, and you become temperate by acting temperately, not eating too much, for instance. And so all of the moral virtues are subject to this kind of base level working of habit and practice. Practicing for good habits. And that's why he says that it actually matters a great deal what habits someone develops from early in their life. And while he doesn't specifically talk about parents and tutors in their role in the moral development of children's lives. In saying that, I think there's a real strong encouragement and he's holding before his audience and therefore before us as well, this high bar of the habits that we train our children, the students in, what we set them up to do again and again, 
how we coach them toward good habits, habits of the good life, and moral virtues in particular, good and true and beautiful ways of relating to others. And so I would refer you at this point, if you haven't checked out Patrick Egan's ebook on habit training, where he draws from Charlotte Mason's method of how do we actually help develop good and positive habits in the lives of our students, in the lives of our children, then go check that out. Read that, download it um, on Educational Renaissance website under Charlotte Mason's practice of habit training, because I think that is part of the answer to what Aristotle is calling out for us here. And he's calling us toward the importance of moral training for young ones, specifically in the habits and thinking about moral virtue in terms of the things that we, they habitually do. Of course, for intellectual excellence, there is this need of coaching and a teacher as well. And I always think of my own early experiences encountering training in gymnastics. So I did gymnastics when I was younger and I remember my coach regularly saying, practice does not make perfect. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Perfect practice makes perfect. And again, this puts the lie to that sort of unschooling approach that somebody could just become excellent at something on their own without the right training. And the fact is we need coaching. We need the help of a teacher. I needed as a young gymnast in training to be told to point my toes, to be corrected for the things I didn't notice, like where you know my knee was bent when it should not have been, to put me through the training regimen of stretches and practicing different exercises, isolating those things. And this all kind of resonates with what researchers are calling deliberate practice. And there are some kind of partial modes of that, like purposeful practice or Daniel Coyle and Talent Code talks about deep practice. And this is really the idea that when you practice something, we really can grow and develop it. Just like that four minute mile I was talking about, the more you run, that if you do it the right way and get the right sort of feedback and improve all these little details, it's really incredible what human beings can do. And so this analogy between morality and artistry is, I think, really powerful here because at the core of both, at the root of both is this idea of habit, but not just any habit, not a habit that is thoughtless, not a habit that is not trained because we're all going to get habits. The question is, are they optimal habits for whatever the type of activity is that we're doing. And that's why, honestly, in morality, we can't go it alone. We need all the wisdom of Christianity, ultimately from God itself, to attain true morality. So there's this unique process. And as we think about habit too, Aristotle would be quick to point out for moral virtue that we, we can't just go for moral virtue in terms of habits as if thinking and making choices had nothing to do with it. He is very aware of the importance of deliberating and choices and how the habits that we have and how we think about what's good for us as human beings 
is in there. And that's actually the intellectual virtue of phronesis. And you can't be morally virtuous in Aristotle's idea if you don't have prudence, if you don't have phronesis, practical wisdom, the ability to um, make good choices, make good judgments with regard to human goods, what is good for you as a person. So those two things are intertwined. And that's part of our big picture here, right? That's a problem with Bloom's taxonomy is that you just isolate the head and take the heart away. We're not seeing how the human person actually works well. We're um, cutting off two things that are meant to be intertwined in the same way that right, the head and the heart are intertwined here for moral virtue in terms of the intellectual virtue of phronesis and moral virtue are necessary for one another. You could make all sorts of wonderful judgments in your mind with regard to human goods and what would be good for you. If you have absolutely horrible habits, that's not going to work out well. And vice versa. You could seem to have great habits trained in you from your youth, but then if you're not making good choices, you're going to undo all of the training of those good habits, whether it came from your parents or yourself earlier on. The last thought that I have for you uh, about this idea of moral virtue and intellectual virtue, of particularly this craftsmanship or artistry around the ideas of habit and practice is is that I think we actually have a resolution to our whole nature-nurture debate that has been this ongoing part of the great conversation about human beings and how we work. To what extent is nature responsible for excellence or virtue in a person? And to what extent is nurture responsible? And I think um, ultimately that that question has been to a certain extent resolved through some of our recent discoveries in neuroscience and neurobiology. And I'm thinking in particular here of uh, Dr. George Bartzakis of UCLA, who's quoted by Daniel Coyle in the Talent Code about how there's this Copernican revolution going on in neurobiology right now. And it's, it's in essence, we've been thinking about things as centered on neurons and synapses and how those work. But what really differentiates human beings in um, their terminology and how they think about human beings is the process of wrapping myelin. Myelin is this fatty white substance that um, a unit called oligodendrocytes uh, will wrap around a um, network of neurons in order to make them fire more efficiently and regularly. And so he uses the analogy, actually as Daniel Coyle uses the analogy of them as tiny broadband installers being throughout our kind of our whole brain or our whole kind of complex of neurons that wrap this myelin when you repeat something multiple times. And the more deep focus and intensity with which you repeat a skill or memory, the more myelin is wrapped around making it able to, you know, if it's a memory, be recalled easier. If it's a particular skill or sequence of activities that you engage in, make that more likely to be repeated in the way that you were doing it. And so there's this, I, I guess, mind-blowing vision of 
who we are and what actually is going on when we, for instance, he talks about learning to read. Learning to read, having this process of wrapping the myelin so that when we're seeing this particular letter or set of letters on the page, it's cueing the right ideas in our minds. And, um, and this whole process of developing moral virtues, moral excellences, being habit-based, and therefore based in this myelin wrapping process, this neurocentric process of firing and neurons firing together and wiring together and get, getting wrapped in myelin. So we actually develop these sorts of skills and it really challenges our traditional metaphors for these things. So we've talked about the head, heart, and hands, for instance, how we can think of some virtues intellectually as, as just happening in the head, but there's a physical structure that's going on there, something that even Charlotte Mason is drawing attention to, like changes in the brain are happening. And she says that at her day, they're not discernible, but we can see a whole lot more of what's going on there with the electric signals and the actual substance of the brain here, the myelin, this white fatty substance that's wrapped around these circuits of neurons. And this is really breaking down our head, heart, hands dichotomy because they're all interrelated. They are wired together. Um, we are intertwined beings. And of course, we need to pause here as Christians. And some of you may be getting nervous right now as we talk about the brain and neurons and myelin and how this makes us who we are because we're able to learn. We have language. We have all these abilities that are beyond the animals. And it's, we can actually see some of what's going on there. And so I wanna pause and put my stake in the sand as it were here and, and let you know, we are not evolutionary materialists. We cannot reduce the mind to the brain. We are spiritual beings. The mind is more than the brain and the neurons and the electrical signals. However, as Christians, this is potentially what we should expect. Um, I, I mentioned before I go into that thought that, you know, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. However far we get in our philosophy, and that's a Hamlet quote, he says to Horatio after, you know, thinking about the ghosts. There, there are spiritual things. So let me be clear that I believe that, and uh, we, we can't just reduce ourselves to... Uh, neurons and electrical signals, but and as Christians, we should expect that we are this intertwined sort of being, spirit, soul, and body, and that those interact. The spirit touches the body, and the body interacts and helps and works with the spirit. There's a great quote from Charlotte Mason where I think she's quoting a poem of some kind that talks about that and the lineance of flesh working things out. And I, of course, think of the, the psalm that says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And yet you've crowned him with glory and honor and put all things in dominion under his feet. So there's this sense in which we are below the angels, but we participate in their intellectual nature. And yet we are also at the same time above all the things of this earth and we can hold them in our dominion. We can actually, as the image of God, steward them 
because of this uniquely intertwined nature where we have you know part of the nature of the angels and part of the nature of animals and those are not just um, part of us that's unrelated to the other part it's actually intertwined in the way that i'm saying so i think this is what we should expect from a christian perspective on things that there would be this unique set of relationships intermingling overlapping going on between head heart and hands between the moral virtues the intellectual virtues especially things like craftsmanship and artistry and the spiritual virtues these are all intertwined and overlapping the more we can put our finger on exactly how that happens and get that into ourselves i think the more helpful that will be for how we engage with children how we think about our own growth because if we can do multiple things at the same time if we can help teach students in a way that develops moral virtue and intellectual virtues and spiritual virtues all at the same time holistically then i think we'll really make ground that we wouldn't be making if we were just isolating one or two little things and that's in my mind part of the problem with bloom's taxonomy so if you just isolate as your educational goals a few little things in the cognitive domain that are really just intellectual skills of one kind they barely even raise up to the category of virtues um, in aristotle's terms then i think you're missing out on something you're really not going to be developing humans in, holistically in the way that you should as an educator so thanks for staying with me through this and thinking about some really big picture things about nature and nurture about how moral excellence and intellectual excellence are actually analogs to one another specifically that artistry or craftsmanship which we're going to explore more going forward there's so much to say about about technique about artistry or craftsmanship not only in the liberal arts but also the common arts the fine and performing arts arts like sports and athletics which i don't think meet everybody's category of artistry but um, it happens it has the same process at its root that's this neurodevelopment process of practice making permanent and therefore refined careful practice of the analogy of a purposeful a deep practice um, with a helpful coach or trainer who knows the right way to do things to get toward the highest levels of excellence that we've learned how to attain as human beings that that's deliberate practice and that's something we're going to be talking about in future articles and lectures so i hope you stay with me as we develop out this series on aristotle's five intellectual virtues as our christian classical goals for education.